the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Think about it today, modern technology. We've got far greater tools, resources, methods, and mechanisms available to we as the church today than ever before in history. Imagine the challenge it must have been for the disciples, for the early church, to spread the gospel to Judea, then Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Absence, highways, transportation, internet, telephones, television, radio stations like this, all of that. None of it existed at the beginning of the church, and yet we saw a phenomenal explosion of the gospel of Jesus Christ all across the then modern world. And yet today, with far greater tools and resources, every before and any time in history, we are, at least in the West, a church that is frail, fractured, faltering, and some might even argue failing. Why is that? What about the major difference between some churches that today look more like the Book of Acts than the church organization in the West? And is it a question of organization, or is it really an organism that lives and breathes the heartbeat of God's commandment for we to go and make disciples? We wrestle with that question today as we're joined in studio by a familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He is the founder and president of Harvest Evangelism and the International Transformation Network. He's the author of a number of best-selling books, including Anointed for Business, also, that none should perish, prayer evangelism, and women, God's secret weapon, and transformation. He's got a very special conference coming up here in the Bay Area that will be hosted at Cathedral of Faith in San Jose, October the 13th through the 16th. We'll get more details on that later on in the program. And meanwhile, Dr. Ed Silvoso, wonderful to see you again. Oh, wonderful to see you, Greg, and wonderful to be on KFAX. <laughs> Let's talk about this fundamental question, and, and, and you're, I think, uniquely qualified, Ed, to give us some insights on this because you do work in both North America, South America, you've traveled the globe, you've had a chance to see the church at its best, the church at its worst. And the one thing that has always puzzled me, we look today at all these tools we have available to us, and you would think, my goodness, the church of Jesus Christ should be exploding okay. across the planet, and yet... And this is not meant to be a blanket accusation against all. No. But to a great degree, we seem to just be limping along. Why so? Well, first of all, let me say, like you, I'm committed to the church. Okay? I am not looking down on the church. But like you, I realize, I read the Bible, I look around, and except for a few exceptions, we are not doing that well. So in my next book called Ecclesia, I raise a very interesting question. Why did Jesus speak about the church only twice? And why there is no command in the Bible to plant churches, mm. much less any teaching on how to do one? 
I mean, those are really provoking questions. And what I present in that book is that in Jesus' days, and this is the answer or the beginning of the answer to your question, there were three institutions, the temple, the synagogue, and the church. The church already existed. Jesus did not invent the church. It was called Ecclesia. The Greeks invented the Ecclesia. It was the assembly of citizens that protected the city. When the Romans took over, they kept the Ecclesia, and when they conquered a territory, they took people captive, made them Romans, and deputized them to rule on behalf of Rome. So not an institution... Certainly not a building, mm-hmm. but really an organism, if right. you will. People. And that's why Jesus didn't say, I will build my temple that was religious. That's right, he didn't say that. I will he? not build my synagogue, mm-hmm. which was also religious. He said, I will build my ecclesia. Now, Greg, the disciples must have been shocked by that because the ecclesia was the agency for the occupying power. So what was Jesus after? He said, I will inject the leaven of the kingdom on an existing institution, and I will turn it into the kingdom of God. And today, I have the privilege to lead the network of about 3,000 influencers who lead about 3 million plus people. And they have taken the kingdom to factories, to schools, to government buildings, And guess what, Greg? Not all the people have come to the Lord. Those institutions have come into the kingdom. The the term occupy until I return comes to mind. Not not in terms so much of eschatology, but in terms of occupying. Yes. uh, Taking hold. Yes. Being present. Yes. um, Injecting into society. Yes. The church, though, at least in recent times and, yeah. and, and, and to the large extent in the Western Hemisphere, has not worked, though, so much on that whole matter of occupancy, per yeah. se. Um, and it's interesting to note, if you look at the phenomenal growth we see in places like communist China, mm-hmm. in places like Argentina, mm-hmm. where you're from, throughout many portions of, mm-hmm. of Central and South America, we find a church that's not necessarily – connotated by buildings and conventions mm-hmm. and Presbyterian bylaws. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do no membership drives. Yeah. It's a matter of occupying yes. and making disciples. And that's a big distinction from the institutional church, isn't it? Absolutely. So to complete the thought, so Jesus says, I will build my ecclesia. And what did the church run on in the book of Acts? There are no buildings, there is no professional clergy, although there were apostles and elders and all that, on meals. Every meal became an expression of the ecclesia. So that's why Paul was able to say, beginning in Jerusalem and all the way to Illyricum, which is on the border with Italy, I have filled the place and I don't have a single place. Why? Because the early church, Greg, occupied the land. Now, how did we end up with these institutions? Enter King James. He didn't like the Bible translated by Tyndale Mm -hmm. because he translated Ecclesia as assembly. And King James is the creator of the 
right of kings. We are divinely ordained. He didn't like a local assembly telling him what to do. So he convened 47 scholars, told them, I want a Bible that I can approve. But he gave them 15 restrictions. And restriction number three, are you ready, was you cannot translate ecclesia as assembly, translated as a church. So then we preserve this hierarchical institution. Episcopal form mm-hmm. of government, which in no way I put down. I'm just explaining. That's why you made reference to third world countries, right? Where the church is growing, uh, uh, communist China. Why? Because there is no centralized institution. Every assembly gathers in the name of the Lord, and they spread out, you know, by word of mouth. This should be very troubling for the the Westernized church, shouldn't it? And and I I say that because, well, challenging and troubling. And the reason why we use the word troubling, Ed, is because we spend so much time in church growth seminars, church planting seminars. We want to have mega churches. It seems to be all about the design of of institution and programs and organization, and yet here you have, just in the example of communist China, Mm. communism takes over, they shut down all the seminaries, they border up all the churches, they arrest the pastors, they kick out the missionaries. The church goes from conservative estimates, maybe there was 100,000 evangelical believers at the time, Mm. who knows? Today we know that even from the official estimates by the government, The evangelical church, those who name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, numbers in the hundreds of millions, absent all of the trappings that we in the West say must be necessary to build a church. Well, and you said must be troubling. I was watching a television program. This was 20 years ago when somebody was commenting on China. These are iconic evangelical leaders, right? And they are reporting on that explosion of growth, right? I mean, without seminars, without anything. And then they said, and now we want to make an appeal to our audience to build a seminary in China. A seminary for what? (laughs) So that they will be like us? I mean, shouldn't we say, let's bring some of those Chinese guys here and mm-hmm. teach Show us. us. Yes. Now, but yes. it's not either or. What we have, we have, and that's why this conference that we are having, we honor what we have, but we hope for more. We're going to pause on that note. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more about not just the upcoming conference, but also this concept. And, Ed, you talk about it a lot. You've written books on marketplace evangelism. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about exactly what that marketplace comprises of. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about evangelism, so is it an event or is it a lifestyle? Mm -hmm. We'll come back to more of the conversation. Best-selling author Ed Silvoso details about the conference right around the corner as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. This uh, upcoming Transform Our World Global Conference is hosted at Cathedral of Faith right here in the Bay Area in San Jose. And you can get details on the web at transformourworld.org. That's transformourworld.org. And, and Ed, there's so much to dissect here. We'd need four hours, and we're obviously going to have to have you come back. I want you to spend a moment, though, before we talk about the conference. Mm -hmm. 
and talk about this concept of marketplace evangelism. We think of marketplace, and traditionally, I think many people, their minds go to Wall Street or Main Street. Um, but the marketplace really is, is broadly defined as where people eat, where yeah. they gather, yeah. socialize, work, entertain, or just simply coexist. Absolutely. I wrote a book called Anointed for Business. In that book, I show that God always works in the marketplace. You look at every revival in the Bible. Not a single revival happened in a religious setting. There are 39 miracles in the book of Acts. 38 happened in the marketplace. Jesus, we think of him like a monk, but he was a managing editor, managing partner in a family-owned business. His apostles have fishing companies, work for the government, medical doctors. That in no way puts down the traditional pastor. I want to go on record saying that. But, but these are ministers, right? Okay. So the first thing to understand marketplace evangelism, we need to understand that in the Bible, there is no separation between sacred and secular. Everything secular that is dedicated to God becomes sacred. sacred, right? Okay. So Paul tells slaves who did the most despicable jobs for masters that were abusive, whatever job you do, do it heartily unto the glory of God. So then we need to understand, Craig, and you do and I do, but this is for the sake of the audience, that everybody is a minister. And the, in the Bible, and I explain this in my book, Transformation, the premier expression of worship is not music. That is the most exquisite. Music is never identified for worship until 2,000 years after the creation of Adam and Eve. So how did they worship God? How did Adam and Eve worship God? By working unto the glory of God. Mm -hmm. Now picture how this changes California now. People go to work on Monday morning and they have the worship switch in the off position <laughs> because they are waiting for music, right? Mm -hmm. They get a break, 20 minutes, iPod, okay, boom, boom, back to the rat race. But when they understand, I am a minister and labor is worship. And you have a taxi driver driving a taxi unto the glory of God. You have a waiter bringing food quietly unto the glory of God. You have a judge passing judgment unto the glory of God. And now look at California from a Google map. Worship all over the place happening there. Does this require a fundamental shift in the way we see and view church? And I ask that question mm -hmm. because for most of us, yeah. Church is a place that we go. Yeah. It's what we do mm -hmm. on Sundays. Yeah. And what you're suggesting is, no, 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 no. Yeah. Church is not a, a, an action or a no. physical location. It is a state of being. It is who we are. I am so excited to have you ask that question because that's the heart of my book, Ecclesia. Church in the Bible is always people. We are the church. Paul doesn't say you go to church. You are the church. You are the ecclesia. So we are the body of Christ. So church is not something we do. Church is something we are. Mm -hmm. So now picture, people realize, okay, I am a minister, and my job is my ministry. So what do you do? 
you take the keys of the kingdom. Look what Jesus says. I will build my church, my ecclesia. Mm-hmm. He was very protective. I will build it, and it's my church. What's the implication? Get off the property. Mm-hmm. But on the way out, pick up the keys of the kingdom. And in the context, he talks about the gates of what? Hell. Hades or hell. Mm-hmm. Do you realize, do people realize that the keys of the kingdom used to be the keys of Hades and death, that Jesus took away from mm-hmm. the devil, mm-hmm. renamed them, and mm-hmm. all the devil has are gates that he can never open, neither open nor close. So now we take the presence of God, we take the kingdom of God, that is righteousness, making right what was wrong, so people will have peace and joy. We take it there, and those gates collapse. So we've completely flipped this equation. We oftentimes will say, and we've heard preacher get up and talk about it on Sunday morning. Now, next week, would you please invite a guest to come to church? Mm -hmm. Bring them to church. What you're saying is, let's bring church to the marketplace. And keep what we have on Sundays. But that is the locker room. That's what the the coach, the manager, okay, team, Mm -hmm. what we hit there Mm -hmm. is playing number 17-B. But right now, the church looks like a final match on the World Soccer Cup. We're in the start of football season. Rest and mm-hmm. 120,000 people that need exercise. And so, what we do in our conference, what we do in our teaching, in our website, we help the pastors recover the tools to enjoy doing church. The action of what we do on Sunday then becomes the respite. Yeah. It becomes a moment of recovery. Yeah. It becomes the coach yeah. giving insight, yeah. instruction, yeah. playbook, yeah. in yeah. this case, God's word, yeah. and then says, okay, now that I have ordained you, yeah. I have equipped you, yep. I am now sending you yeah. back out into the field, yeah. that field is the marketplace, Absolutely. and let's go win one for Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And look at this. Today, there's a lot of talk about the fivefold ministry. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. I, I'm not need to be critical about it, but I'm a phenomenological theologian. I look at phenomena and I interpret it. In that passage in Ephesians 4, apostles, prophets, teachers, the word ministry is not associated with them. It's with the saints. They are given to equip the saints for the saints to do the work of the ministry. So we need to let the Word of God illuminate us because why there are thousands of pastors going through burnt out? Mm -hmm. Why so many churches shut down every year? Because we are trained to conquer and we are living in survival mode. And the other thought, too, is I think about somebody like uh, Bill Walsh. Yeah. Could he, with the 49ers, ever yeah. won a single yeah. Super Bowl had he been the only guy yeah. on yeah. the field? Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the reason why so many pastors are burned out, yeah. washed out, and get out of the yeah. ministry yeah. is they're out there trying to do on the field what yeah. the church, what the yeah. body should be doing. Yeah. And I think there's another factor, and I explained this in my book, Anointed for Business. Marketplace people get safe. 
And we pastors look down on them like if they are idiots, okay? Until you are like me, you cannot do anything intelligent. These are people, some of them lead corporations, whatever. So all they can aspire to is to become elders. And because that resembles this there, when they become elders, they really clip us from behind. But when the pastor understands that you and your household shall be safe, in the Bible, household is not only family, it's workplace. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. How many believers today, maybe, maybe privately you might even admit this for yourself, you can tell people what you believe, you just can't tell them why. We're going to talk a bit about that today as we meet a very special guest, certainly a very familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He's heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. here on KFAX, senior pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland and Alistair. Great to have you on the program. Thank you, Craig. It's very kind of you, and uh, it's, a, it's a treat always to talk with you. My goodness, 30 years. Uh, <laughs> the Lord has done some amazing things over the course of the last three decades. Could, could you ever have imagined when you came from uh, Scotland with your, your wife and young family all that time ago that, that the Lord would have taken you in this direction? No, I, I honestly couldn't, and uh, it seems... In some ways, as though it was only yesterday, time has gone by so quickly, as you say, and yet uh, these have been great and privileged years, and I really wouldn't want to change very much about them at all. It's been a peculiar joy to, uh, first of all, serve this congregation and have them be so long-suffering as to put up with me for three decades. and. Uh, <laughs> And then the radio program on top of that is a, is a, is a wonderful opportunity that uh, we certainly are uh, humbled by and don't take for granted. Well, and we don't take it for granted either, Alistair, because I think uh, many of us um, recognize the importance for a ministry such as yours that in, in the 30 years has moved, I think, consistently and critically so more and deeper into the arena of a Christian apologetics, of which, my goodness, if there was ever a day and time when we needed Christians to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within, this is it. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that, and I was listening to your introductory comments, and uh, I, I agree with you entirely, and uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the fault, if there, if there is an inadequate preparation on the part of uh, uh, Christian people, uh, a lot of the fault has to lie with those of us who are pastors because our role is to prepare God's people for works of ministry and uh, part of the ministry is the ministry of proclamation and uh, so uh, we don't want to chide ourselves too much but we take seriously the peculiar challenges that are represented uh, in uh, the culture here in America particularly in, uh, and uh, expressly so just in the last few days. Well, and certainly, you know, uh, I think all of us, perhaps begrudgingly, can agree that there have been um, areas lacking in the modern-day American pulpit. But that said, the people in the pews have to take a little bit of responsibility to this, too. And I think about 
a wonderful focus that you bring. I was just going through the pages of um, the book that you've co-authored with Sinclair Ferguson, Name Above All Names. And I just, for the benefit of the audience, let me just quote um, a couple of opening lines here. Alistair writes, Jesus Christ has been given the name above all names. The names assigned to him begin in Genesis, end in Revelation. Taken together, they express the incomparable character of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Reflecting on them better prepares us to respond to the exhortations of Scripture, to focus our gaze upon him, and to meditate on how great he is. Then Alistair continues, Being able to think long and lovingly about the Lord Jesus is a dying art. The disciplines required to reflect on him for a prolonged period of time and to be captivated by him have been relegated to a secondary place in contemporary Christian life. Action, rather than meditation, is the order of the day. Sadly, too often that action is not suffused with the grace and power of Jesus Christ. Boy, if anything could could handily sum up some of what we see in the trends taking place in in the church in specific and in our society at large that that certainly summarizes it well yeah i think it's a, <laughs> i think it sounds so good i'm pretty sure that must be sinclair <laughs> <laughs> but it's right on the mark because we we don't ponder the word the way we used to And to reflect on Jesus Christ, to sit and imagine spending hours just pondering about the amazing gift of God's grace that that God would be so passionate about his love for the creation that had nevertheless offended him so, and yet still he was willing to send his only begotten son to die on our behalf. Such a greater love mankind has never known. And and I think that observation in name above all names is right on the mark that we've, we've lost the capacity or the desire or the heartbeat to want to ponder and study on that. And I imagine if we would recap capture that ability, how the church could turn the world upside down. Yeah, I mean, I I think that, you know, if you take the average person coming to church, they're, they're not asking the question, where is Jesus? They're asking, where am I? Mm. And uh, there's a sort of man-centered orientation to even the study of Scripture and even the way in which uh, the Bible is taught that sort of reinforces notions that are you know, sort of immediately appealing, but they don't have any long-lasting value. They're not going to stand uh, in the in the challenges of of uh, time when a culture as as ours turns increasingly secular, and uh, the Christian Church begins to uh, face the challenge of living as a minority uh, in in the culture, which has not been uh, part and parcel of the American psyche at, at least until this point in time. How much of this really pivots on the church, its strength, its understanding of God's word, its ability to make disciples when we talk about the direction or the condition of, of culture and society at large? Well, you know, church history makes it fairly clear, I think, Craig, that, uh, that the collapse of the church has always been internal. You know, it, it has always been able to handle the, the challenges of persecution, the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church. And when the prevailing drift on the outside has been at its most intense, uh, then the people of God have rediscovered who they are, what God expects of them, and they've they've rallied to the challenge. Um, but but the real danger is the, the danger of a sort of internal uh, erosion and uh, a collapse in confidence, a loss of confidence 
in the in the relevance and in the truth and in the power of the good news itself. And again, many many people who pay lip service to to Jesus uh, will be uh, really uh, struggling to to stand up to the. The, the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus, that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus, that there is only one name by which men and women may be saved, and that is in the name of Jesus. And the, the, the drift in culture in, in our um, uh, sort of deconstructed use of language and our understanding of history is so dominant that uh, it, it's absolutely imperative that uh, those who profess the name of Christ I really dig in and understand just what it means for them to be in union with Christ and what a man in, or a, mo- a woman in Christ really is. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Pastor Alistair Begg with us on the program. He, of course, is the host of Truth For Life, heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. We're going to take a brief time out. When we come back, more of our conversation, we dig down into the baseline importance of what it means to truly be a disciple of Christ. As our conversation with Pastor Alistair Begg continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Pastor Alistair Big on the program tonight. More information on the web about the broadcast and ministry at truthforlife.org. That's truthforlife.org. The broadcast weekly mornings at 730 right here on KFAX. You know, we hear these days, Alistair... Churches that have huge crowds and folks that will get up in the platforms, uh, on the pulpit rather, and will share uh, platitudes and nice stories and things of this sort. It seems, though, that on an ever-increasing basis, preaching about the blood of Christ, the atonement, preaching about the need to count the cost of what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is something that that seems to be glaringly absent. Well, yes, you know, I think... Um, it's always dangerous to generalize, and I know you understand that too. Um, yeah, I think we've gone through a real, a, a real period of time in which, you know, that idea of the way to make sure that we don't offend anybody is to uh, dilute things to the point of uh, pretty well tastelessness. And um, you know, when um, the old uh, Scottish theologian spoke to the Yale Divinity students, uh, uh, James Stewart, in in 1952, uh, he warned them, 52, which is 61 years ago, about what he referred to as a, a a theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating kind of Christianity, which he said was absolutely useless. Mm. And you know, I, I think we're seeing the evidences of that now. And one of the one of the encouraging things for me as somebody who's now moved into, you know, um, my 60s, is to see how many young men, though, are coming through in uh, various places in the country and who have really fastened on to the idea that uh, if we're going to take seriously what it means that Jesus is Lord, then we have no right to tamper with or to dilute or to try and redefine the claims of Jesus, but we must just state them as they are. And, of course, to fail to do so really uh, sort of strips the gospel of its life-changing power, doesn't it? Well, of course it does. I mean, the, I mean, in, in first century Corinth, Paul knew that, uh, you know, if he gave the people what they wanted to, to receive, whether it was the Jew or the Greek, then they would receive him with open arms. 
Uh, but the one thing that uh, uh, they were unprepared for is, um, you know, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. There certainly seems to be, as we look at society today, uh, Western culture, there still seems to be a desire and interest in spiritual things. I, I think that sense of, of man's deep, innate longing uh, to be connected with God is there. We just, on an ever-increasing basis, don't know how to define it, and we head out to many false sources to try and address it or satisfy it, be it through pagan religion or the occult or whatever the case might be. Um, and and yet, so we see still a strong hunger, a strong spiritual desire, but it seems as if fewer people are really turning to Christianity, perhaps because we're not sharing the message with the kind of clarity and relevance that is needed to pierce people's hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit and and present a gospel that people can look at and say, wow, there's real power behind this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really helpful, Craig. I, you know, we have an Australian friend who visits here, you know, every few years, and I remember the last time he was here, he made a comment concerning your sort of American Christianity. And, of course, we want to be as guarded with Australians as we should be with Scotsmen. But uh, <laughs> he, he, you know, he said that he, he, he sensed a tone in American Christianity which was, which was a tone of admonition rather than a tone of mission. So that mm. we were going to the culture to admonish them for everything that was wrong uh, you know, in their belief system and in their expressions of their understandings. And I think it is an important thing to realize that uh, Jesus never, ever, um, and he never deviated from the clarity of his message. And yet the way in which he approached Zacchaeus or the way in which he approached the woman at the well, you know, is, is a masterful illustration to us of the way in which uh, we ought to be prepared to to speak to people on the on the troubled seas of life. Have we missed the mark then to a great degree in the sense, Alistair, that I think of the the wave of evangelicalism uh, getting involved in the body politic in a significant fashion, first in the late 1970s and, and certainly in through the decade of the 1980s and into the 90s, not to suggest at all before listeners flood the phone lines here and I get in trouble, that, that we don't have an obligation as believers to vote and be involved in this business of self-governance. I believe that we do. And yet, oftentimes, it seemed as if there was a time in which we exchanged our involvement in the body politic for the realization that if we're going to change the world, we have to change hearts. You really can't affect change of heart by making political change. Yes, things and work needs to be done. Certainly the evidence of the um, uh, what's been coming out of Washington, D.C. in the last couple of days proves that. Yet at the end of the day, the real power is the, is the changed heart. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we do want to make sure that, that each of us are seizing the privileges and responsibilities of living in a democracy like this and making our voice heard and standing up for, uh, you know, moral rectitude and for, for biblical values and so on. But, um, you know, I, I think it's probably too soon to make these determinations, and I'm also fearful of overstepping my bounds here. But if you think back to... Well, I've been here three decades, so I get here right around the time I think that the moral majority and uh, and that whole movement is you know is is coming to the fore and doing what it's done and you know it's gone all the way around. But you know, I think we have to say that actually 
it really hasn't achieved its objectives. Mm. It's been it's it's been unable to to do this. I mean, we we're we're talking now uh, the day after the Supreme Court, you know, passes down what is it certainly couldn't be any any anything other than um, uh, a testimony to to immorality and to the the the. Um, the the very reverse of the things that were angled for and laboured for, and I, I actually am quite excited about it though, Craig. I I'm not uh, despondent. I'm not wringing my hands. I I think that there are certain things that are bad for our country that may well prove to be good for the church mm. if we if we recognise that uh, as we must that God is sovereign over these things that He is the one who sets people up and He is the one who brings them down. Um, he doesn't do that in a vacuum, and therefore our voice must be heard. But we have to recognize, too, that you know our view of the world is is a much larger, vaster conception of what is going on. We're actually affirming the fact that Jesus Christ is not only a resurrected uh, Savior, but he is an ascended king, that he rules over the cosmos, and that the, the providence of God is such that nothing happens except through him and by his will. That's basic biblical Christianity, which, of course, challenges a worldview that is deistic or pantheistic, uh, which, of course, is, you know, uh, both both perspectives are prevalent in, in our contemporary society. So that really takes us back then to the centrality of his lordship and maybe time, as you point out, for some introspection of the church. As much as it's easy to become dismayed by these events morally, politically, even economically that's been occurring in our country and in, in sort of the the micro and globally in the macro to understand that for the church, focusing back on teaching and prayer and giving ourselves to evangelism and to worship and giving to the poor and, and certainly discipleship, if we can get back to those key things, then I think God can indeed have us in the position where he can better use us to influence culture and society around us. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you think about, for example, an era like, uh, you know, the 18th century awakening with Whitfield, yes, you've, you all you always have strong, strong preaching. Uh, Dwight L. Moody, you know, apparently didn't have very many sermons, but nobody misunderstood him when he spoke, and he combined, as did Spurgeon in Victorian England. Um, a real commitment to the good news, the proclamation of the good news, combined with expressions of good deeds, so that both of them were engaged in in the social um, dimension of their immediate environment, whether it was in Chicago or in London. Both of them were involved with orphanages, and yet they did not for a moment confuse the necessity of people turning to Christ in repentance and faith with uh, the the good and necessary outflow of Christian uh, living that that uh, cares for the, for those who are least and last and left out. If there could be one singular message that is central to your heartbeat, the one message that you'd like to get across to every man and woman who has named Jesus as Lord and Savior, what would that be? Wow! Oh, well. I think if I just apply it to myself, I mean, I I think to fully understand that, you know, when Paul says one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to understand that, that he's not talking there about that being an expression of devotion. He's talking about being a, an expression of his identity. 
that what he's saying there is that this that this Jesus, as the apostles did post Pentecost, this Jesus whom you crucified, uh, God has made him both Lord and King, and therefore. I have no freedom to believe anything other than what he teaches me. And what he teaches me is left for me in the scriptures. And I have no freedom to behave in any other way than that for which, uh, to which I'm called. And that then, you know, impacts every area of our lives, uh, our vocation, uh, our sexuality, uh, our marriages, uh, our singleness, whatever it might be. And, you know, then then we have an opportunity to... Uh, to speak to people, and and often, uh, you know, the the attractiveness of it uh, ought to be found in the loveliness of Christ, mm. the compassion of Christ, the patience of Christ, and I think so often, if you if you take, for example, and sometimes the media has branded us in this way, and a few crazy people have have led to it, but but I think we do have to face the fact that we often come across as a rather disgruntled and angry bunch of people. Uh, as opposed to uh, a people who say that they have been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Yeah, you're right. It's often interesting if you talk to non-believers um, and get their opinion about Christians. Uh, they can give you a long list, a big litany of what it is that we are against. Right. And then when you ask them, can you tell us what Christians are for? There's silence. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and that speaks volumes, certainly. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I, I you know, if you think about Jesus with the woman at the well, you know, what a, what a conversation starts to, may I have a drink of water, please? You know, he doesn't, he, he eventually gets to the point, you know, when he asks her to call her husband and, and she admits that, you know, she's had a number of husbands and she has a live-in lover, but that's not what, that's not what he starts with. I mean, he's not sitting at the well with a big sign condemning, you know, her, uh, her multiple relationships. He, he starts by, as simply engaging her in conversation. Maybe hey, we as the church can learn a lot from that example, that we might be better to engage the culture and society around us for the sake of the gospel by simply beginning with engaging others in conversation and, of course, ultimately understanding what it means to be a disciple, to count the cost. We sure appreciate your time, your faithfulness to the Lord, and the caliber and quality of your uh, teaching ministry. Thanks so much again for the time. There's Pastor Alistair Begg. Again, uh, his broadcast is weekday mornings at 7.30 here on KFAX. And, uh, wow, 30 years of ministry at Parkside Church in uh, Cleveland. And what a blessing it is to have him as part of the ministry here at KFAX. And let me just say this. If Alistair's pulpit ministry has been a blessing to you, would you take a moment today and jot him a note. It's not about puffing people up, but you know, sometimes it's good to know that you're making a difference, that what you're saying and what you're teaching and your heartbeat and your passion for God and for his word is impacting lives. And if you would take a moment today to drop him a note, I know that he would certainly be blessed and encouraged by that. You can get more information about the ministry at truthforlife.org, truthforlife.org. And our thanks again. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. 
Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.